and welcome to another episode of Radio Zaddy. I'm Hannah Bestwick, here as always with the wonderful... Daisy Thurston-Gent, hi. Now, if you're new to this podcast, this maybe the first episode that you're listening to, every episode we learn about a new queer topic from each other. Uh, now, this can be anything from like in film or TV, sports, we may even just learn about one particular person's amazing life. Um, now, we don't know what the other person's going to be talking about, so it's always as new to us as it is to you. But we invite you to come along on this journey to discover queer representation, hidden stories, and sometimes we even just apply queer theory to the everyday world around us. Now, Daisy, I've just come back from holiday. I've been in Scotland for just over a week driving around, sometimes camping in the horrible rain. But what that means is I believe you've got a full episode. For yeah, us I've this been week. here. I've been here uh, just like delving really far down uh, down a rabbit hole. Um, I'm going to jump straight in because uh, this episode uh, yeah, today's episode I'm going to talk to you about brief history of drag kings. Oh, which okay, I've been yeah. meaning to talk to you about for like a long time and I'm not exaggerating when I say that there are like hundreds and thousands of things I could have talked about in today's episode. Mm. But yeah, I really wanted to kind of go a bit into the history of this incredible art form. Yeah, there's 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 so much to talk about. But um, hang on, because you said to me earlier today, you said, I bet you can guess what it's about. What? How, how could I possibly have guessed that? I don't know. I feel like it's a really, you know, big, like an obvious topic that we maybe should have, that we oh, were yeah, going to get to at some point. It's definitely obvious. But I think you, I think you imagine that I have a better theory of mind than I really do. Because every I week think... you're like, I just feel like you know. When like when you were singing um, on the last, ep- <laughs> uh, before the Rocket last Man. episode, and I was like, I wonder what, that, I wonder what it's going to be about. I feel like I always give the game away somehow because I have one of those brains that just connects things. And so yeah, yeah, if yeah. I'm talking about space, I'll inevitably be singing like. Do you ever know what something? I'm going to talk about before I talk? No. No, see? Maybe we're not as telepathically we're not, connected. We're not as in tune as we thought we were. <laughs> well, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. It means uh, there's more surpri- like room for surprise. Yeah, um, yeah. So, basically, yeah, there's loads and loads of strands that kind of plat into this, like, woven history about drag performance. Um, but I might save some of the more kind of, uh, like, theatrical-specific history um, and the kind of ancient tradition... Uh, ancient traditions of the Chinese uh, dynasties, like for a separate episode, because um, okay, it wow, dates okay. way back to ancient times, uh, which I didn't even realise. Oh um, but also, there's you know a whole opportunity to talk, like go off on tangents about um, travesty theatre, uh, breaches roles in the 17th century, like British theatre. Well, are we going to find out all about all these? Like these could all fill up whole episodes, quite okay. frankly. So okay. I'm gonna. I'm going to kind of slide, like, try and stick to, like, the history of kind of Western male impersonation in this episode. Male impersonation, okay. Western. So, like, and how it's basically impacted the kind of drag king um, performances that we might see today. Okay, sure, yeah, let's go for it. Right, so um, I think, like, there used to be maybe this assumption that a lot of drag queen, uh, drag kings were, were lesbians. Um, yeah, that and, is an assumption that I often make. Yeah, like, kind of, you know, ladies dressing up in... Um, yeah, kind of cis lesbians maybe dressing up in, in men's clothing and being, like, fairly butch. But, like, it's a lot more than that. Um, okay. Like, the majority of, like, modern kings that we see are um, are actually trans and non-binary performers. Ah. Um, and there's a number of traditional entertainers who were actually straight cis women. Oh. So, yeah, so there's going to be a real range of uh, people that I talk about today. A range like, of representation. Exactly. And, like, as a profession, it seems to be pretty pretty open, like, fairly open. Um, and it makes room for a lot of kind of gender ambiguity, both on and off stage. Um, mm. So we're going to talk about people's lives as performers, but also how, you know, how their social, you know, their personal lives kind of impacted queer history as well. Yeah. But yeah, the key thing about it is, is it is a performance of masculinity in some form. Okay. That's basically the definition of it. Okay. Can men be drag kings? Uh, yeah, yeah. In the same way that women can be uh, drag oh, queens. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, so yeah, it's yeah. a heightened performance of masculinity. Yeah, it's, yeah. Like a caricature. Yeah, exactly, okay. exactly. Um, so drag, king, drag kings were once kind of exclusively called uh, male impersonators. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, pencil-drawn moustaches, uh, tightly bound chest, oversized suits, um, and it was very much about clothing in order to kind of mask um, the kind of femininity of the performer. Like, traditionally they would be, um, you know, it would be it would be women, um, whereas now it's a, it's a huge spectrum of genders and, and performers. And, the, yeah, the key difference seems to be that kings are, you know about making like an entertaining show out of the impersonation so it's different okay. to you know maybe people who would be kind of cross-dressing and all you know obviously there's lots of um, so it's different basic um what I'm, like it's different from cosplay let's say where you just put on the costume and to kind of pass yeah you may yeah. be like yeah it's just a visual 
mm. representation. Yeah. Whereas yeah, yeah. this is like you might do what stand up singing. Yeah, it would be much more about like performing. Um, you know, a much more heightened kind of maybe even ridiculing certain elements of masculinity. Okay, yeah. So yeah, it'd be making a show out of the impersonation using clothing or makeup to make a performance of masculinity. And a lot of um, women in history made very handsome gentlemen sure uh, in their time. And you know, these were uh, some of these women were amongst the highest paid people in British theatre, which is quite rare really? for you know for women in general. Um, which is quite cool. So that's finding really out... cool. Yeah. <laughs> so unlike you know a lot of queer history, we um, drag seems to have been fairly well documented because it was once a highly praised form of popular entertainment, as it still is today. And there are records of performances and archived uh, like audio footage dating back to the 18th and 19th century. So it's been around for a while. Gosh. And being sort of famed entertainers seem to provide a certain level of protection mm. for queer people. Um, this kind of air of celebrity um, meant that. People weren't, you know, some people were obviously subject to a bit of abuse, but it it seemed to be a way of sort of protecting people with these characters um, mm. and people wouldn't be so, you know, fixated on their kind of gender identity because it was very much about entertainment and theatricality and all that. Okay, yeah. Um, which is good. So these people were often openly celebrated uh, rather than persecuted, which is, which is really good. Because as we remember, the 18th and 19th century, probably not a great time for gay people. No, um, I was thinking about the Bloomsbury group and how they had a, a bit of protection because of their literary status status yeah as like intellectuals but also they were very rich and that mm. does afford a lot of protections anyway, yeah 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 oh definitely so also i read an article um on them online uh which talks about performers who were uh touring and kind of living life on the road um mm. as a way of avoiding the prying eyes of the police or even like their own family um and that yeah the fame afforded those who sort of you know transgressed gender norms um you know both on and off stage with with some protection and traveling between cities also allowed queer people to you know form connections and and to meet uh, with other people in the communities um other queer communities like around the countries and just basically build a network mm. um it's sort of the first time people were, were getting not the first time but it was it was a form of of connection so they were like queer communities would different would drag kings from different, or like men impersonators from different cities and things, all travel and perform together, like a variety show. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so then you'd, you'd get, get to know. Okay, yeah, you'd okay, get kind of really like cool. theatre troops, but also like you would meet people in the audience. You know, a lot of queer oh, yeah. people would come to the, uh, you know, come to the shows, yeah, and yeah. then it's an opportunity to meet. Otherwise, you know, you wouldn't necessarily get queer people just roaming aimlessly. It's like giving it a purpose. You know, mm. if you're travelling with a show. Yeah. 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 Um, so at this point, like you know, these are all kind of women in trousers portraying men through through songs um, and comedy skits uh, in the mid eighteen hundreds, and a lot of these performers were sort of donning tailcoats uh, and top hats, uh, and would also sing freely about their love for the ladies. Um, and a lot of uh, yeah, a lot of the acts would basically consist of uh, like a lot of audience banter, a lot of um, kind of improv, and like weaving in a lot of like off the cuff jokes, um, and a lot of kind of physical comedy into the songs sadly there isn't much like archival footage like or photography of the live shows so you have to um from the kind of music hall events so like if you're researching this you kind of have to rely on like the newspaper clippings mm. um and like the sh like the billboard you know the things that would be pasted up which are often like self-promotional so right. people would refer to themselves as like the greatest male impersonator <laughs> of all time and right. they'd all call themselves that is that just because like because the lighting would be a bit shit once the show's actually on that you and the cameras weren't great so i guess so. Just, like, so not the norm i don't know so that a lot of the like the photos i found were very much like posed photos um yeah. of these kind of early drag kings like looking really like really cool and really fierce but it was a very much like who knows how they were actually were on stage right. like i've heard a lot of like musical numbers and songs which are sound, sound lovely but um yeah but there's not a lot of photos of people doing things live until kind okay. of a bit later until i wonder later. how well it would translate anyway you know because yeah. you've got to be there sometimes it's just about you know you so much of it was about improvisation and yeah yeah exactly and um, go see a band live and you it sounds amazing then but you buy the cd and listen to it at home and sometimes it's just not it's just, you know often yeah. it's not the same yeah so you've got to be there it's the atmosphere you've got to be there but so i'm going to talk about a couple of um performers that i just yeah i want to mention so there's people uh, i want to see how many you may have heard of i don't know have you ever been to a drag a king show like a drag king show um not I've seen a drag king perform here in Cambridge, actually, Mr. Mm. Wesley Dykes. Yes. And I think, oh, I can't, honestly can't remember if there were more drag king performers that night because I was quite drunk. Yeah. And I have a feeling I saw one in a variety show in Yeah, usually too, there's yeah. like one or maybe two on the bill, um, but really there, there should be more because there's absolutely like hundreds and hundreds out there. Yeah. Um, you know, across... 
the UK as well as, you know, internationally, Australia, America, um, mm. everywhere, you know, everywhere. It's, yeah, it really has stemmed from this, yeah, this kind of really old tradition um, in the kind of 18th century. So there's people like uh, Bessie Bonehill. Um, who toured the world, like toured the world in uh, with her act imitating sailors mainly, um, and soldiers and newsboys and all these kind of boy characters. <laughs> uh, but she was actually one of the wealthiest performers of her era in the UK musicals. Oh my god! Like these Victorian musicals just sounded like an absolute riot, and they pay pretty well. Like for what someone who they... was... <laughs> I guess it was like one of the only forms of entertainment, and so like everyone went to the theatre much more. Than yeah, musicals. yeah. But like, what? It's like you stay out all night. Like alcohol was just like free flowing by the sound of it. It just sounds absolutely like raucous. Um, and you know, very kind of underground, a little bit kind of, you know, a bit hidden, but you know, very grand. But like those kind of real, those real kind of secretive nights out where you're never sure what you're going to get. A variety show. Yeah, they just sound really good fun. Um, and I think there is a bit more of like a move towards that like now or like to reclaim that and there's a lot more like you know cabaret is really obviously you know never never died or never Mm. went too underground but um it's becoming a lot more mainstream i think it's really having a kind of resurgence i feel like it went underground a bit because of the victorian prudishness maybe but maybe yeah it was really really repressed for quite a while there in the mid yeah and so maybe that killed a lot yeah, maybe. Maybe this was like the sort of heyday, like kind of, and then, you know, even throughout the war, a lot of these, um, a lot of these performers would kind of offer that kind of, you know, light relief, um, mm. you know, and, and ridicule and mimic some of these really masculine, you know, soldiers. Yeah. Um, so there's another one called um, Ella, uh, Ella Westner, um, who had a pretty sensational career as a male impersonator, which spanned 38 years. So not oh like, my God. I'll just dip my toe in, like 38 years of your life, yeah. um, performing in both the US and the UK, and even mentored uh, her niece in the art of male personation. And a lot of, you know, people do, they all kind of get likened to each other. And it sounds like they were all kind of performing around the same time. And, you know, you'd see one and then they kind of, the ones in the UK music halls would kind of go over to America and, and kind of, do the variety performances there and then it would kind of yeah. adapt the and style like, humor and things like that go in fashions anyway yeah exactly and so like you'd so i imagine you'd play to whatever's big at the big at the time yeah definitely 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 and so western was known to perform a range of characters including the captain mm. uh, the dude and the, the s- and the swell um, what is swell? so the swell is a bit like a dandy um, okay. A kind of wealthy gentleman of leisure. leisure. Everything's swell. Yeah, the yeah. swell, bit kind of schmoozy and uh, schwammy. Yeah, like a uh, good time guy. Good time guy, exactly. <laughs> Don't know where that was going, but sure. <laughs> yeah, the swell. You can kind of, yeah, there's a bit of kind of movement and it's a bit, yeah, a bit like a dandy, but definitely like quite a lot of wealth, a bit of aristocracy, that kind of mm-hmm, thing. Mm-hmm. Westner uh, reportedly eloped to Europe uh, with a Miss Josie Mansfield. Um, Gosh. And her dying wish to be, was to be buried in her suit, right? Um, nice. Like this item that had pretty much defined her career. Um, so these people who kind of live and die, you know, as these as these kings, as these characters, um, you know, even to the point of eloping with another woman, you know, it goes beyond kind of a bit of flirting with the audience. It is like embodying this kind of swell yeah. character on I and off stage. Like, yeah, there's there's a, a kind of freedom in that be, uh, of being able to act out your, I don't know, masculine side mm. and to be allowed to flirt with women and should be like, oh, that's just that's just my character's flirting, but it's really me. But also my character is flirting with you, but also do you like me? <laughs> but do, you, do you want to run away to Europe with me? Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the, yeah, uh, one of maybe the most famous um, person that I came across was Annie Hindle. Um, who was sort of widely regarded as the greatest performer in American variety after, but like began her career in the English musicals. Again, was she self-proclaimed the greatest? You know, I think on the bill (laughs) she used to call herself like the world's best, you know, Miss Hindle, all that. Like, um, so, you know, you can take with a pinch oh, of salt. Oh, I can see it in my head, because they were all, like, drawn posters. They yeah, 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 like old circus. Like, yeah. The Magnificent, yeah. the world's greatest. <laughs> the world's greatest. Step it's... right up. <laughs> Comedians do that, though, don't they? They kind of introduce themselves from behind the curtain, like... They and do now... themselves. I always wondered if there was an MC that just did that like bit. But, like, yeah, maybe. afford an MC. You just put on a bit of a voice and be like, here on stage tonight... <laughs> it's your favourite podcast, the world's greatest, Radio Zeddy! <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Um, so a lot of her audiences were made up pretty much exclusively of, um, well, mostly working class men. Okay. So, oh, so they were performing mostly to men. Yeah, a lot of the time oh. there'd be a lot of men in the audience, and because it was sort of a safe space, because you know they could feel they could feel secure in their masculinity because it was a woman, a woman. on stage, right? right? 
Um, and also she gave, so um, Annie Hindle gave, uh, was famous for giving like a lot of courting advice. Uh, and oh, sang, I see. Yeah, and sang like a lot of songs that Civil empowered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like, hey, fellas, this is how you do it. Yeah. Um, but kind of performing as a man and kind of mm, showing mm. them how it was done, basically. Uh, and also sang songs that were pretty, like the empowering of, the, of working class masculinity. So, you know, playing these, you know, like, yeah, kind of working class roles, um, kind of labourers. and yeah, yeah, But yeah. also in a kind of empowering way rather, and or, you know, playing a, an upper class character and being ridiculous and so yes, they yeah, could then laugh say, it's like at that mocking the upper classes yeah. and, and we're all in this together like, yeah 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 exactly there's a lot of like yeah mockery of the of the aristocracy which is always funny yeah um always just a fact uh so here's some juice about Annie Hindle mm. um cuz she had quite a fascinating personal life um she was officially married four times um but on- <laughs> only twice to men <gasps> Officially married to women. Well, I, well, she's there's a lot of like blurred accounts, so it probably wasn't like strictly legal, but it was definitely like recognised as as marriage in some sense because well, we'll get to it. Okay, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. So first, uh, first marriage was to uh, Charles Vivian, uh, an actor she met when she first came to America in 1868, uh, which only lasted six weeks. Uh, okay. Yep. Uh, short and sweet. Um, no, it wasn't sweet. It was fairly abusive, from what I can oh, okay. kind of decipher from the from the archives. But um, mm. anyway, uh, so the second marriage was to uh, William W. Long in eighteen seventy eight, uh, another performer. But apparently, after her divorce to Charles Vivian, uh, she actually began to sort of change her appearance quite drastically to present as much more conventionally uh, male. Mm-hmm. So um, lowering uh, her voice and and shaving so that her facial hair would sort of coarsen um, into stubble. Yeah. And her third marriage um, in 1886 was to Annie Ryan, oh. who was actually her dresser. Oh. So, um, and Annie Hindle dressed uh, in male attire and called herself Charles in order to marry Annie Ryan. Oh. So, you know... W- so it's, like, official, but also... Yeah, because a lot of the you know they looked really convincing. Um, yeah. you know, wearing you know wearing all the clothes and, and you know with a bit of you know had sang in a very deep voice as well. Um, and I mean like marriage is such an old institution. Institute. Yeah. It, it doesn't it doesn't need to be recognized by a government or any kind yeah. of church because it existed long before we had any of that really. Yeah. Well, especially like Christianity, it existed long before that, and so. You know, it, it would still be a marriage even if it wasn't like yes, if, on paper signed by the yeah. Government. If she was kind of self-proclaimed and living, you know, living that way, like yeah, of course yeah. that's what it was. And apparently, the, be- the best man was Gilbert um, Cerrone, who was actually a female impersonator at the time, so a drag queen. So great, just like so keep great. it in the family. Sounds yeah. uh, <laughs> sounds brilliant. So unfortunately, uh, within months of so Annie Ryan's death was in 1891, oh. uh, which is a bit sad. Uh, Hindle just married her second wife. Uh, Louise Spegnell, which might be one of the earliest examples of the lesbian U-Haul, uh, as, oh, it is nice. known, as it would be known today. Yeah, okay, <laughs> so they met and immediately got married. Yeah, pretty much. Nice. Um, so yeah, so quite a whirlwind. Uh, lots of gender questioning and dismantling going on there. Um, yeah, I've read a lot of... I've actually read like a lot of interviews with modern uh, drag kings who also note that, you know, through during the art of male uh, drag, a lot of them were able to explore and define their own queerness. Mm. Um, a lot of people who previously might have identified as um as straight or cis would kind of go into you know doing a bit of drag maybe through you know it might start off as like a costume or there's a yeah. there's a a drag king um that rep- that um impersonates david bowie um called right. jean genie yeah. and um yeah in, in an interview she says that she was pretty much straight and or considered identified as, as straight and then through doing and did bowie as like a halloween costume once and then kept kept doing it and then you know got really into it you know bought more costumes did more shows and now pretty much like that is the character they impersonate every every time and also they've come since come out as queer and yeah anyway a little tangent there so absurd as bowie as well yeah so it turns out like trousers are the gateway drug um okay to gender bending who knew um <laughs> that's what we're gonna blame the trousers uh those pantaloons those pantaloons uh let's take things all the way back to uh victorian uh, victorian england we've obviously mentioned the uh the raucous music halls yes yes uh, that were sort of blossoming at this time uh, a mixture of like alcohol fields like scandal satire everyone was allowed to be a little bit naughty obviously we mentioned like the pleasure gardens in one yes, of the previous behind Vauxhall tavern behind Vauxhall London, tavern yeah, like yeah. it's all like you know there's a 
there's all kinds of things happening, like in the bushes, in the, also, you know, in the bathrooms. Bit yeah, a bit of fun, bit of kind of you know loud gossip, glory, all of that. Yeah. So these variety performances were particularly popular with the working classes. Yeah. Um, as many impersonators were known for their kind of yeah humorous portrayal and mockery of the middle and particularly the upper classes. So it just sounds like a bit of a you know a bit cheeky, a bit of a riot. Um, in 1912, uh, the first Royal Command performance of Variety um, took place in London's West End. Uh, and who should perform for the King and Queen but a woman wearing trousers <laughs> singing a lively rendition of Algie the Pic- Piccadilly Johnny, um, which reportedly resulted in the Queen Mary burying her head in her programme. Just oh my God. absolutely scandalous. Um, and the performer's name was Vesta Tilly, who okay. I'm sure that many of you will have heard of. And even though her performance shocked the royals, she was in fact the highest paid female entertainer on that stage that night. That's which is fucking cool. Um, Amazing. So unlike her contemporaries, Vesta Tilly moved away from um, theatrical realism and like pretty much wasn't ashamed to reveal a, like a more curvaceous figure and kind of show a bit of, you know, show the more kind of feminine sides, wasn't too focused on passing as an actual like male, but wanted to, you know, show a bit of like be a bit gender bending, mm. you know, generally a bit disruptive and kind of, you know, do a nod to the feminine within her songs as well. So like her hits include... Uh, Jolly Good Luck to the Girl Who Loves a Soldier, um, and Burlington Bertie, uh, which, yeah, ridicule uh, pretentious aristocrats and promiscuous soldiers. Gosh, I mean, they are that. They are promiscuous. So it's good to, like, you know, mock all these kind of bits of, yeah, these kind of heightened bits of masculinity. One of Tilly's rivals of the time uh, was uh, Hetty King. Okay. Uh, who was also extremely popular on the uh, popular on the musical scene in the 1900s. Uh, she performed a range of nautical characters. Okay, sure. Uh, which makes... Which makes sense, uh, because her first public dance performances were with her father's seaside trope. Oh, nice. Which is quite yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, nice way in. And she performed like throughout the World Wars uh, as both, you know, and appeared as many a soldier and a sailor. Um, and that was kind of her her theme. And many one of her best hits uh, was called Ship Ahoy, All the Nice Girls Love a Sailor. So you can see all these like little like nuances of saying, yeah, yeah. like, the girls love a sailor, I'm a girl, I love me. You know, it's, yeah. it's really, like, it's really funny. Yeah. <laughs> and I just love it. And that kind of confidence that air of confidence that comes with being a bit of a you know a sailor or a soldier who kind of dips in and you know swans in fucks around and, and leaves again and leaves it's, again yeah all that presumption that's so good there's so many so many good people to talk about and you can find like recordings of Hetty King um, online which I definitely encourage you we probably couldn't play it for copyright reasons but um is there like a, an archive? There's loads, yeah, yeah, there's okay, absolutely yeah, loads. Yeah, we can include it on the think, show notes. Yeah, you can definitely listen to um, All the Nice Girls Love a Sailor. Uh, I also did a bit of reading about Florence Hines, okay. um, who was a black drag king, um, first known for performing in a show called um, Creole uh, Burlesque in 1891. And the, and the show, so it began as a kind of standard minstrel show, okay. um, pretty problematic, mm-hmm. um, But it and it toured, it toured under the leadership of a popular white promoter called Sam T. Jack, uh, and the cast was obviously made up entirely of black performers, but with, like within a few years, it did develop into uh, just the Creole show, which was actually considered to be the first burlesque company to feature African-American women, including Florence Hines. So it became a bit more progressive and moved away from the more kind of, you know, the minstrel shows and, yeah. and kind of, you know, blackface and all that crap stuff, which was obviously a really popular form at the time, but it was often, you know, you'd get promoters that were white heading up a kind of black theatre group which is that is what it was so the Creole show was was no longer about kind of staging this and I'm going to do air quotes like authentic representation of black experience which was obviously not authentic it was yeah yeah it was always set in like pre-civil war southern plantation fantasy like really nasty but actually so the Creole show became much more about empowering black performers to create comedic characters of their own and you know that were comedic characters that were racially grounded but not you know without being plagued with stereotypes and kind of skits that were kind of I don't know not quite getting it right and not quite as woke as it maybe thought it was yeah Um, because it's still ultimately if it was still running under the white uh, promoter he would have had a say in what got on the stage so it seems completely believable that as much as the performers were trying to make something their own, it wouldn't have been their own in the end because a white person at the end mm. was getting to make the final call. Yeah, exactly. And you can't, you know, and a lot of this, you know, it is touring with a with a promoter, and so it could have been a really successful show. But any, you know, again, any of the, um, you know, sort of press about it would have been written by, you know, how much is going to be like the guff of, of the promoter, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I'm sure it was a great and show. How much is going to be what, like? people want to hear mm. at the time yeah um but it sounds like it was trying to make you know some leaps forward in that 
it wasn't um, about this this kind of really weird as black culture. Yeah, this yeah. weird authentic, supposedly authentic representation that was just not authentic. It's such an odd way to like label it. I, I didn't even realize that they used to call minstrel shows an authentic representation of African uh, of black culture. Yeah, I just, that's God, pretty nasty. Yeah. Anyway, so as a so as a drag king, um, Heinz performed uh, a routine as a dandy. Um, so uh, yeah, flashy, fashionable, promiscuous young man uh, who drank and dated excessively. So one of her most famous numbers was uh, high waiter a dozen more bottles uh, and i'm gonna read you the first verse okay please do <laughs> is it gonna be filthy it's not filthy it's not okay filthy. it's all very pc uh well lovely woman who was made to be loved to be fondled and courted and kissed and the fellows who've never made love to a girl well they don't know what fun they have missed I'm a fellow who's up on the times, just a boy, f- just the boy for a lark or a spree. There's a chap that's dead stuck on women and wine, and you can bet your old boots that it's me. <laughs> I love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah, you were um, really getting into that. Absolutely love it. I mean, th- so this song was very popular amongst like loads of drag kings yeah. of the day. Um, and often, like, yeah, this dandy would be somewhat of kind of an MC or a host, perhaps, for, like, the evening's entertainment. And... Like, this performance of uh, confidence and, like, showmanship was, mm. was really perceived to be, like, as a way to kind of needle the men, particularly, in the audience. Um, yeah. Yeah, which was obviously particularly important for black performers, right? Like, adopting the role of a dandy was a way to kind of rewrite the narrative of, of blackness, um, you know, that was often played out on stage, you know, in very insensitive ways. So to have this, you know, that kind of shift of confidence and shift of power is is really, is really key and really important. Um, and it sort of yeah opened opened up the stage for performers to just ha- you know to be in control whether those you know whether they were women or whether they were black people or you know yeah people of color or both you know <laughs> so this is why people like florence florence hines were like really sensational um mm. sensational people of the day um yeah uh, so the status of the dandy uh, resisted the kind of common depiction of black people on stage which was often like passive and kind of degraded characters mm. in a book called the prettiest girl on the stage is a man. Kathleen B. Casey wrote, When worn by a black performer, the tuxedo with tails, cane, cape and top hat, countered the image of the ragged, shoeless plantation slave. Yeah. Which absolutely does. It's mm. like the furthest you can get, right? And Heinz was, was one of many f- uh, famed female performers who kind of really ran with this image um, and developed, yeah, a new kind of black performance, which is really cool. Yeah. Because if you're playing this sort of dandy character, it's all about being charming and having and being a showman. And if you mm. are hosting an evening... You know, you have to get people on side, and yeah, I think it's a really important, like, pivotal role um, for anyone, especially yeah, especially women, especially black women. Mm-hmm. So, performing around the same time in the kind of eighteen nineties, early nineteen hundreds, uh, was this OG indigenous dra- uh, drag king, uh, Gongo Mohawk, mm-hmm. who was also a notable athlete as well mm-hmm. as an entertainer, and mm-hmm. she wrote like she wrote her own shows, casting herself um, as the principal role of an indigenous man. This was the first time. Um, a, a woman had portrayed a indigenous. Where was this? Uh, this is in New York. In New York. Okay. Um, as her kind of yeah, so she would perform um, as an indigenous man, as uh, her natural physique already kind of challenged these expectations yeah. of femininity yeah. at the time. Like Mohawk was incredibly tall mm. and yeah, incredibly athletic, um, and so chose to perform in male roles um, as they provided more opportunities for riding and wrestling, nice. uh, knife fighting sequences, excellent, uh, and generally just like performing loads of stunts, which went down like really well with her audiences in New York and also in the UK. She performed in like Norwich or somewhere, um, and there was so this good. great review of people. Like, oh so my she God. wrote herself a stunt action. Yeah, play. yeah, because she was already really tall, so she was just like, oh, I might as well be an, a man because that makes sense. Because then I can ride a horse and throw knives around, and also just be my tall self. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. there, like, there is such an idea that women have to be small and dainty, and that's not that's not a new idea. Yeah. So it was it was less about yeah it was less about wearing a tuxedo and and you know tailcoat and, mm, a, and it's embracing a, her natural physique. It sounds like yeah exactly, yeah. and it's still performing a, like a really heightened version of masculinity, but yeah. Yeah, of of her own wrestling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and of her own, um, yeah, people and, and kind of paying homage to, yeah, the indigenous people who were obviously living in America um, at the time. Uh, so next up we've got uh, Gladys Bentley. We're just kind of, we're going to run through this timeline. Uh, next up we've got Gladys Bentley, a singer, pianist and male impersonator who was described as uh, the gender-bending blues performer who Amazing. had a uh, huge success in the 1920s and 30s during uh, the Harlem Renaissance. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of that. No, I haven't. Harlem Renaissance was like a cultural revival of African-American music, dance, art, theatre, you know, centred in um, 
in Harlem in Manhattan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and performers like Gladys Bentley were kind of at the centre of that movement. So you've got, yeah, drag kings right in the middle of this amazing kind of artistic revival. Yeah. Um, and she was bold, she was black, she was brilliant. Uh, Bentley wore, like, this trademark white tuxedo oh, um, at, so with a matching good. bow tie and top hat, all in white. Like So difficult to keep clean. Yeah. I mean, satin is a nightmare. Oh, my God. Um, Not that I've ever had to clean or own anything satin, but I imagine it's really difficult. (laughs) (laughs) I went to uni with someone who um, used to have silk or satin pyjamas. Anyway, it's very, very fancy. Um, (laughs) Anyway, that was uh, besides the point. Anyway, so Gladys Bentley, like, uh, sang very openly about sex Mm. um, and, like, boldly flirted with the women in her audiences. She just sounded really fierce. um, and Ever so slightly intimidating, maybe. Yeah, a little bit, maybe. Like... For the idea of, yeah, just like openly flirting with the women in the yes. room um, while singing like about sex, it just sounds brilliant. And yeah, her performances challenged like quite a lot of binaries at the time, certainly around race and mm-hmm. um, as well as class, gender, and sexuality. So a little later, if we jump a little later down the timeline, there's um, Stormy Delavrier, um, who was a jazz singer, MC, and entertainer who uh, performed in the performed with the Jewel Box Review from 1955 to 1969. Stormy was at the Stonewall riots, right? Absolutely, yeah, 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 yeah right in the centre of of the Stonewall riots, and a, a lot of accounts say that she threw the first punch. Oh, because I read another account that said that she was the one that shouted why don't you all do something? Mm. And that's what caused the first stone. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah. So she was obviously there. Yeah, she was something def- happened. absolutely there. Um, it sounds like she was a real, like, spirit of the community as well. Like, yeah. Um, was often going down to places like the Stonewall Inn to kind of offer support, check on, like, you yeah, know, some of the younger people. I, I thought they called her, like, the, the lesbian guardian angel or something. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. Of Christopher Street? What was it? Yeah. Yeah, because she used to yeah. um, sort of chase away people who were har- harassing women and, and and men. Oh, yeah, it sounds like she just kind of lived ar- like around like she there. was great. Yeah, yeah. And just helping people. Um, yeah. So she was doing, like, multiple shows. A- so between those years with the Jewel Box Review, was doing multiple shows a day across New York, um, city, yeah, city venues, and also, like, across the country with the touring show. Um, and the touring show was called 25 Men and One Girl, <laughs> um, which was described as a travelling musical show of gender deception. Nice. So everyone thought it was, like... And no, and people apparently couldn't tell who the woman was, right? Because it was just, like, a bunch of... Yeah, a bunch of kind of entertainers. And oh, my God, like, amazing. It's so convincing. Yeah. Yeah, so she was right there... Stormo was right there in the Stonewall Riots. Um, yeah, right until years later... Um, yeah, the later years in her life, she was considered a very much, like, a pillar of the community, spent her life helping people after her musical career came to an end. I think... Yeah, I didn't read too much about this, but apparently I think her um, her partner or her girlfriend, like, died quite soon after the riots or mm. during I'm not sure whether it was during the riots or something around that time um, and it kind of her musical career basically kind of stopped after that which is a bit sad that's amazing. Um, but she still you know describes herself um, I watched it there's a, there's a short documentary you can watch on online where they, where they interviewed her um, in her later years and she describes herself as uh, a human being who has survived and helped other people survive which is just yeah good st- solid yeah really really interesting person I mean, I've just had the best time researching this because I just got—I like just got time. to watch it's loads, really loads, <laughs> loads of YouTube videos. Um, one of my okay, one of my favourites that I watched was um a king called uh, Lily Tomlin playing uh, a, a character called uh, Tommy Velour, who okay. is a kind of Velour. Las Vegas lounge lizard, Ooh. um, like really kind really of schmarmy, yeah, yeah, a little bit slimy, yeah. but like kind of endearing as well. Yeah. Um, and on this in this video, um he's on his knees like performing to elizabeth taylor and really? is just being like super flirty and super open and then michael jackson is sat next to her just giggling <laughs> and it's just so funny watching because he's just like michael jackson is giggling as this kind of just like hee yeah definitely hee just not having like like looking like hasn't got a bone of masculine in his body right yeah in comparison to this, like, really kind of bravado yeah. performer, Tommy uh, Tommy Velour. And so Michael Jackson's just giggling next to her. And there's this incredible confidence, but, like, this air of kind of presumption that comes with, like, impersonating the masculine. Mm. Um, and at one point, Tommy, like, pops his collar, uh, revealing, like, this ridiculous amount of chest hair, just, like, <laughs> bursting from the ruffles of his shirt. Like Austin Powers Exactly, yeah, like, just ruffles. Literally just a patch just, of fur. It's so, like, it's so funny. And, li- and like, yeah, Liz Taylor is just, like gasps and is like clearly drawn in and is clearly like absolutely buying it and eating it up it's That's so brilliant so funny so notorious uh king moby dick mm-hmm. um who ran club casanova in the 90s like has has since founded uh, dragkinghistory.com uh, nice. which is 
an incredible resource um, and timeline which goes all the way back. And this is where I got so much of um, you know this information, this knowledge from. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I recommend you do check it out. And so Moby Dick describes how uh, the scene in 90s New York uh, was like much more about drag king realness mm-hmm. and like passing mm. as male. So in the 90s, it, it kind of went a bit more back to like the art of impersonation and you know performers would even like stick their own hair clippings to their like to their chins to keep up this illusion of like facial hair like real facial hair wow. so it was much more about like the illusion and and kind of similar to kind of the the queens who you know it's very much about like being fishy and like pass, definitely passing as female so it's very much yeah 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 whereas nowadays like you know more or less anything goes and you'll have like you know, marker pen pecs and like yeah. glitter, bright glitter, like beards, um, and like half of the East London, ki- you know, queens in in the UK will like keep their luscious moustaches and their mm, kind of mm-hmm. beards and their thick chest hair as part of their kind of signature look. So yeah. it's a lot more like free and and fluid now. Yeah, it's a lot less binary. Yeah, really. definitely. Yeah. So yeah, nowadays there's like this. Yeah, there's such a huge spectrum of of drag performers out there it's like it's really incredible and uh yeah many of the kings and queens that we see in the big clubs um and on television aren't yeah are non-binary um and the scene is far more welcoming of trans performers um yeah it just basically seems like a lot of the binaries have been kind of shattered completely which is which is really nice but um in the kind of if we look at like the mainstream um you know while contestants on let's say rupaul's drag race uh, Mm. may occasionally do like boy drag they call Mm -hmm. it um, there is yet to be a king invited to the show. Um, and this has kind of caused quite, like, an uproar yeah. in the community. I did wonder... I wondered if it was, like... Because there's also not been... No, sorry. There's not been a um, a cis woman on RuPaul's Drag Race mm. either. Because if it was just about drag queens, then it's not a show for drag kings. But yeah. you could still potentially have a cis woman mm. um, to do a drag queen yeah. performance. Because they, they, they exist too. But yeah. there's just not been variety, really. Yeah, and it has been he- quite heavily criticised for that because, you know, if you go to any other show, the bill would be really heavily criticised if it didn't have a king on or, you know, or, you know, didn't include any trans performers. Like, because they are just, that's the scene, right? Like, it's actually quite hard to find a room full of, ju- you know, just drag queens, actually. Mm. Um, and I think, to, like, shows like RuPaul's Drag Race do. I think have a a duty to increase their like diversity of cast, let's call it, mm. because people it's it is mainstream. It's the most mainstream. People yeah. watch it, and I, you know, I said I went to like a variety show at a festival. It was just advertised as a as a drag show, and I was like, excellent, I'm going to go see it. But two of my friends there who love RuPaul's Drag Race, love drag queens, mm-hmm. love the performance, the like the art artistry of it just immediately were uninterested yeah because it was because it wasn't drag queens it was drag kings mm. and it was like other kinds of performance there was a burlesque dancer um and someone dressed as a nun that had a book on fire and that was amazing the bible was burning it was irreverent and wonderful yeah it was so good but they just it wasn't what they were used to and it wasn't what they mm. wanted but then if if more diversity of performances were on RuPaul's Drag Race, I think that they would have been engaged. Yeah. yeah. There's this kind of perceived... Like, the idea that it's not it's not as light-hearted or it's not as fun as presenting femininity, which is absolute yeah. rubbish. But that's... I think that also... that I think that comes from a more misogynistic view as well, is that it's okay to make fun of yeah. women, mm-hmm. but it's not okay to make fun of men. That's almost what it feels like. Or, or But equally, on the same flip side of that, it's like, it's good because it's male performers doing drag queens yeah. and we like like men get much more promotion yeah. and the fact that it's women performing as male cat or like not necessarily always women like you said now it's a lot mm. of trans people and non-binary people but perceived to be yeah women performing as men and female performers don't get the same airtime yeah and, and don't like, get paid sometimes don't get paid as much like yeah. even if a drag king is on the same bill sometimes won't get paid as much because they're a woman, yeah. right? Even if, if, if they're they doing are. the same amount of time, yeah. whatever, like, and I do think there's quite a lot of sexism and misogyny tied up in yeah, yeah, yeah. the way people think who's on dra- uh, RuPaul's Drag Race is amazing, but other types of performance are not. Yeah, and it's just, you know, so many people won't have seen, most people have seen a, a drag queen, whether it's live or on the television, um, but very few people have seen drag kings. Yeah, like, that lot, I know. Like I didn't know until you know, let's say five years ago, that drag queen, that drag kings existed yeah, and at it's all. Mad because they're always on the, you know, there's always 
they're always on the bill. They're always on the same shows. Like they're the ones. Obviously, it's they're kept a lot in, um, you know, limited to maybe smaller kind of fringy venues. Whereas, like, yeah, the superstars of the scene are kind of I don't know. Even like the most popular drag kings are still not household names mm. yeah, compared to their drag queen sisters. And so, yeah, there's a big call. There's a big call at the moment in the drag entertainment community for kings to have the same mainstream recognition as their queen counterparts. Um, and many drag queen performers, you know, such as I don't know, like Alaska or Sasha Velour, like, you know, people who have won RuPaul's Drag Race, highly credit the kings that they work with, like, saying how much, like, often how much harder it is to impersonate caricature and critique masculinity and to make it entertaining. Mm. Like, there's a lot of... It is... It's difficult, right? It's, it's definitely trickier um, because there is a lot of, you know, there's a lot of misogyny and there's a lot of kind of violence which is maybe seen as kind of unsafe for, for queer people. Anyway, I'll get on to that. Mm -hmm. um, so I've got a quote here from a uh, uh, Brooklyn-based drag king, uh, Max Pleasure, um, who <laughs> said, I had to find a masculine character that was performing strength without being violent yes. and had a sexy appeal without being predatory. Yeah. And that's such a like hard line to yeah, tread, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it really is. And I was thinking that about what you were saying about um, Elizabeth Taylor and uh, Valour. What was his name? Tommy Valour. Tommy Valour. There is also a, a slight added safety because it's a performance that you're watching mm. whereas if you know if someone came up to you at a bar and started hitting on you that strongly you'd be like hold the fuck on mm. but because you're at a performance there is that slight added element of distance between you and the performer that makes it safe but equally a lot of uh exaggerated traits of masculinity that we perceive go towards violence and aggression and hurt mm. And so it can be really difficult. Yeah, you know? it's a bit of a seesaw. And like as a performer, as a drag king, you can kind of curve that. You can you can cut it off at the point where it's still sexy and endearing without being yeah predatory and, yeah. and aggressive. Yeah. Um. So like obviously there's a couple of obvious characters that kings would perform. You know this kind of heightened macho figure, um, or the kind of sexist, slimy businessman. You know a bit of a pig. Like a way to not only imitate but to to ridicule um, mm. this exaggerated masculinity in order to draw attention to and like expose a lot of the lurid sexual behaviour and male violence. You know, um, that does go on. Um, however, this is like definitely not always the case, and a lot of like modern kings, including those on like the international circuit, like today, will, will often pay um, homage to male talent mm. and it's been much more about you know raising raising up rather than kicking down as just a way to kind of flood places with joy um yeah and to have it you know as a queer safe space basically and so like they adopt a much more some will adopt a much more charming per, uh, persona in order to promote queer friendly material and one such tribute act i found um was someone called elvis herselves's Herselvis, Elvis Herselvis, uh, who performs a range of uh, masculine traits in her act as a professional female Elvis impersonator that is so and drag good. king. But all uh, these attributes come from a place of like sincere uh, respect and admiration. Yeah, singing according to her Wikipedia page, uh, singing with her sen sensuous vibrato while wiping the sweat from her brow with the panties of devoted fans. <laughs> Sounds like so a great life. Imagining it like being more, it is like an impersonation, but in a way that is slightly comedic or something like that. Like you're still doing an Elvis tribute, yeah, but you're doing it in your own way. You're not trying to be like, you know, there's bands out there that try to completely emulate mm. the performance of the Beatles yeah. as if you were watching the Beatles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, if you were doing the Beatles, I don't know, on cocaine, not on cocaine, that's not it, because they were on cocaine all the time, <laughs> as if you were, like, doing the Beatles times a hundred. Yeah, like a character. To, like, yeah. to the extreme. Yeah, in the Yellow Submarine cartoon version Yeah, they the are, Beatles, they yeah. are. Okay, okay. <laughs> so, I I so I've got a quote from um, Elvis herself, and she says, straight men are very uh, intimidated uh, by a woman impersonating Elvis. It is one of the last bastions of masculinity, the right to do Elvis. Mm -hmm. I personally think he was very queeny, uh, in the 1950s, he wore makeup and pink on stage uh, when that was unheard of behaviour for a straight man. Yeah, so it's he kind was of all like sequiny, like yeah, white those, pants, like, Vegas, jumpsuit, like yeah. what? Those Vegas so suits camp. were covered, yeah, covered in studs and sequins. Oh man. Um, and yeah, wearing pink and yeah, just and it's it's coming from a place of love. It's coming from a place of respect and saying like this behaviour is ridiculous and that's okay. Yeah, because we love how ridiculous it is. Yeah, we love it. And, yeah, I mean, so to ridicule masculinity is, is a very hard line to tread because, you know, there is a clear history of, of patriarchal violence that affects queer people. Yeah. Um, so, that you know, the task of turning that then into comedy and entertainment is incredibly daunting. And yeah. I don't think drag kings are given enough credit for doing that. You know, they're 
picking up on these, you know, really evil characters some of the time, you know, like Donald Trump or mm. like, you know, or politicians. Like, that's a hard thing to make funny when all they do is... Not all they do. Well, yeah, all they do is evil, right? Like, that's a hard thing to, you know, to be Mike Pence and Donald Trump is a really difficult thing to make funny because it is terrifying because mm. it's real but it can be done and it is it is done very well like across the world um and has been done for centuries so that i think that's where i'm going to actually leave things for today um okay. there is yeah so so much more um to say about the history of, of drag king performances and if you haven't been to a drag king show before then i strongly suggest that you seek one out um, because they are incredibly fun, uh, over the top, and thought-provoking. Yeah. And it's popular, right? It's it's just as popular as a drag queen show. You'll be able to find one. In fact, and I've got a couple... Uh, yeah, one last fact. In 2019, the final of Man Up, uh, okay. which is uh, Europe's biggest drag king competition, it completely oh sold out a 750-person venue. Completely sold it out, which is pretty fucking cool. And obviously, then the pandemic kind of got in the way. But, you know, it was definitely where, on... Where is it hosted normally? Or is it like, does it change each each year? I thought it was like in, the Olympics. Um, oh, that big one in, like, maybe the Clapham Grand, I can't remember, which is like one of those big theatre halls. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's the biggest competition in Europe and it absolutely sold out. That's but amazing. it's also good to see that there, you know, there's much more of this, this movement towards revamping the kind of mixed bill variety, as I mentioned earlier, like, in, you know, which kind of echo the, the performance styles of, like, the musical eras. So you can even catch uh, the NB show, um, at this year's me. Underbelly Festival in Cavendish Square, London, um, really? which is a mixed cabaret show uh, brought to you by an, cast, uh, an entire cast of non-binary performers, um, hosted by Carrot, who is um, of course I have they're huge, called Carrot. I, just, yeah, I absolutely <laughs> love Carrot, and yeah, it promises to be um, an all-star variety night popping with creme de thems. <laughs> Which is the best pun, and I think that's absolutely where I'm going to leave it. That sounds amazing. It's it's oh, really man. fucking cool, and. Like there's, you know, and if you're if you're in New York, you've you've got some, you know, people like Sasha Velour, who was a, you know, contestant and winner of RuPaul's Drag Race, who put, always puts like quality kings on the bill. Um, and pretty much if you're a promoter, not putting drag kings on your cabaret bill, if you're exclusively just using just queens, just queens, then you're doing something wrong because there's so much talent out there, and you don't want like a lot of kings. If you're the only person on the bill, you're you're representing an entire community, and that is a huge... That's a big weight. It's a big weight Such to carry. Such a weight. And no wonder people haven't heard of... I also feel like, if I was going to go see a show of multiple performances, I wouldn't want them all to be the same. Like, I wouldn't want... If there's a bill of five performers, I wouldn't want to see five drag queens. Mm. No offence, but, like, you know, there's... there's. I feel like I it would feel a bit samey after a while. There's so much more... Yeah, the point is the variety performance, right? Yeah, and I know that, that, you know, queens all have a very unique and different style, but I'd want... I'd, if I was going to see a variety show, I'd want to see queens, mm. kings, like, other kinds of performance, burlesque, yeah. whatever. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just think that there is there is a lot of responsi- a lot more responsibility that should be on... Oh, definitely. ...mainstream media, like... RuPaul's Drag Race, let's mm-hmm. use that as an example, to have more kings on the show. Definitely. Because it is a performance in exactly the same right as uh, drag queens. And yeah. just as much of a transformation has to go into it. Right? Yeah, exactly. There's so much. You know, it's not just about a couple of... Yeah, just because you're not kind of, like, padding your hips, you're still, you know, having to, you know, m- like, bind your chest and, and be... And pack. pack. and pack, exactly. Like, you know, how to, d- like, hide a... F- female potentially yeah more feminine body you know yeah. breasts and booty and and all those kind yeah of bits. like you can always the the additive nature of becoming a drag queen putting on hip pads uh breasts uh booty pads what else do we much have? harder to like cover those things yeah up. it's harder to make breasts look non-existent than to stick a pair on yeah and right? the, yeah That's... the artistry of like the makeup that goes into like creating a six uh, like a six pack or like yeah. a macho look you know there's a there's a drag king called um murray hill who is like a, basically performs as like a kind of mobster that kind of like kind of gangster nice. like pinstripe suit like you know it has to be super oversized but not look like it's baggy you know um you know the slick back hair the kind of barber shop like real clipped um yeah, you know yeah. big chunky cigar i haven't got the exact quote here but there's a there's something that they said about you know it's just it's leveling the playing field and it's not about being you know it's not about being this like groundbreaking trailblazer but it is just about leveling the playing field and and making a name for yourself and showing that there is hundreds of people out there and like drag can take any kind of form and mm. look it can look like you it can look like that person on stage who is 
are they an Italian mobster? Are they gonna like, you know, slice me after the show? Who knows? I'll <laughs> take that risk. You. Slice me. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I've never met a mobster. Yeah, I really like. Um, I know I keep mentioning them, but uh, Mrs. Wilson Dykes. Yeah. Uh, they dress as like in like I don't know, but because they wear really well fitting clothes. Mm but always just dressed so well in like a waistcoat and a shirt and just like... Really thin facial hair, like... Yeah, it's really little, neat. Yeah. Um, and their performance is really great, like the singing and dancing and like... They do um, a great number of Classic Man, which classic is... Man, oh, classic Man, that's it, that's what it's called. And yeah, it's just, it is really entertaining to watch and I just think that maybe I should look harder, but I wish there were more yeah. openly advertised shows. I, I get the newsletter from Peck Strikings, mm-hmm. um, the collective yeah there's yeah. a great collective called Pex, um who do a lot of work at the yeah i mean the, they tour at the moment there's probably yeah. loads of stuff at the you know the underbelly restarted, festival yeah. the vaults festival bar whatever is every tuesday i think at the rvt maybe we should go to the um the mb show we should absolutely it's I like think we should. it's the 31st of august i think yeah 2021 in yeah in london in the underbelly festival which i think is going to be outside so it sounds great and it's ho- yeah hosted by carrot and i don't know who else is performing but it sounds really incredible and and yeah, bar whatever is every Tuesday. There's obviously you know Man Up, which mm-hmm. is like the kind of competition. I don't know when that's going to be back. Yaz Nakati is uh, a really brilliant drag performer um, and also a poet, um, who does uh, in their act they do uh, Tarkan, which is like a Turkish like pop star, which is incredibly like quite a very niche. effeminate like cool. character as okay. well. Um, like but very high yeah this kind of very heightened um, version of, of Turkish masculinity, which is like really over the top kind of pop star sensation. Love it. Yes, yeah, so there's. There's plenty of incredible people out there, and I will drop all their will drop all, all their Instagrams um, into into uh, the description, and I hope you will go and learn about some drag kings. Yeah, definitely. I I feel inspired to go and go through a you know go into a YouTube hole watching drag kings. It's and good fun, comments. and the old stuff is really is really fun. I bet it. Is. Yeah, <laughs> every girl loves a sailor. I just I just imagine like. For some reason, when you talk about this old school drag, I just imagine Charlie Chaplin. Well, and I don't, them, like, I don't yeah. know why, but like I just that, but women. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, like, but a lot of the songs were written. So Vesta Tilly, I think it's Vesta Tilly. Um, her songs were written by just a mate of Charlie Chaplin's. Um, you know, so there is that kind of. There's a bit of slapstick. It's a bit of physical. It's very like yeah, Victorian and over yeah, over the top basically. Yeah, um, yeah, it's That's fantastic. So great. Thank anyway, you so thank much, you so Amy. much. Um, if you want to get us on social media, we are at Radio Zaddy, radio spelled the normal way, and Zaddy, X-A-D-D-Y, and that's on Instagram and also on Twitter. Um, if you search Radio Zaddy Anchor FM, uh, you can find us on Anchor, and that will link you to our WordPress, which has all our um, resources and things on there as well. Um, have I covered everything there? Yeah, I think you have. Um, thank you very much. I've been Dave Sturson Gent, and with me has been... Hannah Bestwick. Thank you very much for listening. Take Cheers. care. Bye-bye. Bye.